Morning, everybody. So, uh, this is the, the first time I'm preaching up here without uh, Josh here. It's kind of like, you know, when the parents are like trying to leave the house for the night and they decided to give a test ride with like having one of the kids watch the other kids. So, don't worry though, we're not going to have pizza and Pop Tarts Mountain Dew for dinner. Um, I'm going <laughs> to still do my best to. Uh, feed us all with some real spiritual food. Um, But before we uh, dig into John 7 today, uh, let's just uh, start with some prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this morning that we can gather, that we can worship your name, that we can study your word that was given to us, Lord. And even 2,000 years later, um, it is still relevant today. So Lord, I pray that your spirit would be moving today, convicting us, Lord, revealing truth to us so that we would be your church, not just a church that follows practical wisdom, but, Lord, a church that follows your word, that follows the leading of your Holy Spirit as well. And we just pray for all of this in your Son's holy name. Amen. All right, so today we're going to be jumping into John 7, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. Uh, Before we dig into that, though, I want to do a quick review of Josh's sermon from last week. So last week, Josh covered all of chapter 6, and, you know, that chapter is well known as the feeding of the 5,000. But Josh did a good job going over the entirety of that chapter and even the fallout of the many Uh, followers and disciples who turned away from Jesus as a result of some of the challenging words that he said to them. Because at that time, many people had these beliefs and these expectations about Jesus because many were seeking him for his signs and his works or even just the perceived comforts that he would bring as the Messiah. I mean, we can look at just a few verses from that chapter to see what their hopes and expectations were. So looking at chapter 6, verses 14 through 15, it says, When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. You know, we look at uh, verse 26, and that one says, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me because you, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. So at this point, we see that Jesus has been generating a large following because of all the signs and miracles that he had performed. And as we look back at these chapters, these signs and miracles weren't for his own status and elevation. All of them were meant to bring glory to God. But, you know, we we start to see the hearts of the people revealed in chapter 6 here. Jesus knew what was in their hearts, and they were not believing him and following him in faith. And as a result of this, he deliberately challenges the crowds because they are seeking him for their own comfort. He later states in that chapter, I am the bread of life. He continues on, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Now, as Josh pointed out last week, like as Christians here, 2,000 years from then, we look at this and we're like, oh, well, duh. Like, he's clearly talking about, like, the sacrifice of his body on the cross and how, you know, we also commemorate this with communion. But at the time, like, it's not, you know, they were taking him literally and they're thinking, oh, my goodness, this guy is teaching cannibalism. (laughs) 
So the crowds are expecting a Messiah who's going to free them from the Roman rule and provide for their physical needs in their own kingdom. But they don't understand his words here because they're thinking in a worldly mindset. And they're assuming that this crazy guy is teaching about cannibalism. And as a result, we see at the end of this chapter, many turn away from following Jesus. And here's the point. This entire interaction, it's deliberate. And it's going to play a part into our study of chapter 7. As Jesus challenged their mindsets then, he also challenges his brother's mindsets in chapter 7. And he challenges our mindsets today. And it's not as if that Jesus is this terrible communicator, that he's incapable of communication skills. It's not like he needs some sort of marketing manager or social media coordinator. It's not like he has someone following him with their phone. They're like, um, Jesus, I'm not sure if we should be saying that, you know, your, your, your flesh is true bread and your blood is true drink. Maybe we should, like, retool this a bit and make it a little more friendly for social media because we want to get your followers up. No, this is all deliberate here because Jesus is trying to challenge the worldly mindset of the day. So now let's look at chapter 7. So to give a little bit of context, this ch- chapter 7 takes place during the Feast of Booths. The Feast of Booths um, has many different names. The Feast of Tabernacles. Um, it's also known as Sukkot. Uh, and this takes place roughly six months after the events of chapter 6 when Passover occurred. Uh, Passover... Um, in our modern Gregorian calendar, Passover typically occurs um, between March and April, and then uh, the Feast of Tabernacles would take place in September or October. And so this Feast of Tabernacles, it's a pilgrimage festival in which the Jews would travel to Jerusalem, and they would dwell in these temporary leafy shelters for a week-long celebration, which commemorates their deliverance from Egypt and God's continuing faithfulness in the wilderness, as well as the completion of the harvest season. So this is where we find ourselves roughly six months after the events of chapter 6. So starting in verse 1, it reads, After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brother said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you. It hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not yet going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. So let's break this down and look at the first five verses. So we must keep in context, in mind the context of these previous chapters. We look back at chapter 5 and we see how Jesus goes to Jerusalem for another feast. Um, and, and there he heals a man on the Sabbath. This healing on the Sabbath leads to a confrontation with the Jewish leaders in which Jesus starts to challenge their own observance of the law. And we just talked about his own confrontation with his followers and disciples in chapter 6. So at this point, Jesus knows that the Jews are seeking to kill him in Jerusalem. We see that back in, um, we see how that started back in chapter 5, verse 18, when it says, 
This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And so that starts this hatred for Jesus and this desire to kill him from many of the Jews in the Jerusalem area. And so recently, Jesus has been ministering in the region of Galilee rather than in the region of Judea, which contains Jerusalem. So the Feast of Booths has arrived, and Jesus' brothers are preparing for their journey into Jerusalem. And as they're preparing to head out, they challenge him to do signs and works on the big stage of Jerusalem in order to assert his claims of authority. So let's look back at verse 3 and see what they are saying. So his brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples may also see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. His own brothers didn't believe he was the Messiah. So they challenge him, prove yourself on a bigger stage for all to see if you are truly who you claim to be. You know, given the context of the confrontation with the Pharisees and many of Jesus' disciples turning away from following him, this argument by Jesus' brothers makes sense from a worldly perspective. You know, he just lost a bunch of followers. He's been challenging these leaders. So if he claims to be this great leader and teacher, then why not go up to Jerusalem where all these Jews are going to be gathered for a festival? Get on the big stage. Do a lot of signs and wonders. You can regain a huge following from that. You know, this festival can serve as a platform for him. But his brothers are thinking in a worldly mindset. And we see Jesus' response to them in verses 6 through 9. You know, his response reveals his ultimate submission to the Father's plan and timing. You know, let's look again at Jesus' words, starting in verse 6. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not yet going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. And after saying this, he remained in Galilee. So let's examine his attitude, his posture of his heart. You know, and we we look at what he's saying. And, you know, this goes back to a few weeks ago when Josh was preaching on chapter 5. And I think chapter 5, verse 19 can best describe Jesus' response to the Jews and how it models his own posture of his heart here. So in chapter 5, verse 19, it says, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. So we see here in chapter 5 and then in chapter 7 that Jesus perfectly understands God's plan, and he submitted to his timing and mission. He didn't try to take matters into his own hands and create some entertaining conference to wow the crowds of Jerusalem with signs and wonders. He yielded to God's purpose for him. You know, and we, we see later in chapter 7, when we look at verses 10 through 24, that Jesus does eventually go to this festival. But rather than going up with the crowd and performing signs and wonders, he goes to the temple and teaches. 
So looking at verse 10, it says, But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. Going down to verse 14, About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. And so we see this attitude, we see his actions and his heart, and we see his response to uh, his brothers arguing from a worldly perspective. So what are the key lessons here? You know, as we study Jesus' character, I want to look at two things that are modeled for us here. The first one is an awareness of God's timing. In the very first verse, Jesus was spending his time of ministry in Galilee because the Jews in the region of Judea were seeking to kill him after the events of chapter 5. And it's not like he was afraid and just laying low in order to rebuild a following. Rather, he recognized that it was not yet time for him to be arrested and crucified, so he remains in Galilee, continuing to do the work of God's kingdom. You know, we also look at his response to his brothers in verse 6 again, and this also shows his awareness of God's timing. You know, he says, My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. Uh, There's a commentary on this chapter by David Gusick that I really liked, and in that commentary he states, Because Jesus was completely submitted to the will of the Father, the timing of God the Father was important. The brothers of Jesus were not submitted to God's will in the same way, so any time was fine with them. He later goes on to say, As Jesus obeyed his Father, he lived out the truth that God's timing is an important expression of his will. Something may be in God's will, but not yet in his timing. And we see this beautiful balance of Jesus understanding God's will, but also understanding the timing that goes with it and ultimately submitting to that and not trying to just do things in his own strength and wisdom. A second thing that's modeled for us here is Jesus's awareness of his own identity. He says, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Jesus, being fully human and also fully God, understood that he was not of this world. He explains this concept later to his disciples in chapter 15. So let's turn there. In chapter 15, verses 18 through 19, he says to his disciples, If the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. So what does it mean when Jesus is saying you are not of the world? What does it mean to not be of the world? I think this is uh, really well explained in Romans as well. So if we look at chapter 6, Paul is speaking to his audience, um, starting in verses 3 through 11. Paul writes, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were raised, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. 
For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. There is a spiritual conversion that takes place when we repent, when we place our faith in Jesus. This spiritual conversion leads to a newness of life when we become Christians. So Paul shows here what baptism truly represents. It represents our old self of the world being buried with Christ. And that is the part where we are being submerged underwater. And when we are being raised out of the water, that represents us being raised to a new life with Christ. So we are no longer of this world, but we are spiritually alive in Christ. That is our new identity, which then leads us to the rest of this application for our lives right now. So, looking back at Jesus' model, he understands he is not of this world, and we as Christians are also not of this world anymore. Jesus understood his own identity and God's timing and will. He lived that out each and every day, and that is modeled for us in his word to us. And so the question for all of us, are we living with this awareness and this acceptance of our identity in Christ and God's timing and will. And so I want to encourage all of us here. The main lesson I want to encourage all of us to take away is to adopt this attitude of humility and submission to the Father's will, just as Jesus did in his own earthly ministry. Jesus modeled this attitude for his followers, and we too are called to this type of renewed mindset. Uh, About six months ago, I preached on Romans 12, and I want to bring this up again to remind us all that Paul exhorts every single one of us in verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, when we talked about it last time, I was really trying to um, focus in on this idea of the transformed mindset. But something that I, as I was going through it again, that I really realized I want to hit on even more this time is the why do we need a transformed mindset? And he says it here at the end of verse 2. So that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And I think that's something we forget sometimes is that as Christians, we're called to discern God's will. See, we may not understand God's will perfectly the way Jesus did. We may not understand every single season of our lives. But we are called not to think like the world, but to think in a newness of life, to be transformed by the Spirit so that we can discern what God's will is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Because if we don't 
go through this transformation, if we don't learn how to discern, we're just going to think like the rest of the world. And so everything we do is just going to be according to the world. The way we pursue careers, the way we raise families, the way we do anything in life, the way we chase after hobbies or money or other things, even the way we build this church. If we are not being transformed and learning how to discern God's will, we're just going to be like Jesus' brothers and the crowd who we can't comprehend what is going on. And so we just try to take matters into our own hands because we can understand it according to the world. We must guard against following worldly advice rather than God's word. This worldly mindset is to assert ourselves, but we are called to submit ourselves to God's sovereign will and his mission for his church. And so my question here is, what are we truly building for? Are we building for our own kingdom or God's kingdom? You know, I I, I see this in my own life. And, you know, just to give a little bit of insight, you know, I've shared before how I've struggled a lot with anxiety and social media and trying to, like, validate myself based on what everybody else is doing and trying to validate myself according to the world. And, (laughs) like, this is legit how my mind works when I get on social media sometimes, or at least in the past. I still struggle with it, but I've learned to set up some boundaries and start, uh, letting those burdens go. But I used to just get so caught up in what people were doing. Oh, look at so-and-so over here. They spent their weekend like traveling to this gorgeous place and they did some hiking and they had fun and they ate good food. I need to like get away. I need to like spend my weekend doing that. And so next Saturday, I'm over here. You know, my wife and I, we go over here and we have a nice vacation or we get away and we just like get out and enjoy the time. But then at the end of the day, I'm like, oh, that was kind of fun. But then I go on Facebook and I'm like, oh man, so-and-so spent their day like doing this on their house. Oh, look at that cool project. Oh man, I should really learn how to do more DIY stuff. That'd be fun. So then the following weekend, I'm like, okay, well now I'm going to like go over here and I'm like try to work on stuff and like try to figure out how to do stuff. But then I look at my phone again after the end of the day and I'm like, oh man, so-and-so was hanging out with this person. I need to go see my friends. I haven't been doing that in a while. And the next Saturday, I'm like, okay, I'm hanging out with my friends. Everything's great. This is fun. I love being with my friends. We're having so much fun. I can post about this. And it's like, and then it's like you get on your phone again and then I see what else is happening. And the cycle just keeps repeating itself where I go between like trying to keep up with traveling, trying to keep up with making my house look Instagram worthy, trying to see all my friends and look popular, you know, and, you know, we laugh at this because on display it looks foolish because it looks like a hamster running on a wheel, but that's what we do. We allow social media sometimes to dictate how we live our life, and I am a prime example of that. And so what I want to get at is let's Zoom out a bit from the stage of life we find ourselves on and see what is God's will? What is his kingdom? What is his mission for us, both individually and corporately as the church? Are we going to just follow the worldly advice, just allow Instagram and Facebook and Twitter to dictate how we operate and run our lives every single day? Or are we going to go to the word and see what God's calling us to do? You know, and another thing here, too, that we see on display in John 7 is this idea of pragmatism and practicality. See, 
The world loves pragmatism. More specifically, the American culture loves pragmatism. We love efficiency and results. We love being able to streamline everything to know that X will produce Y. And so we get so pragmatic in this idea that like, okay, like if I go to college, if I start investing at this age, if I start doing all this stuff, I'll have 401k set, I'll have trust funds set for my kids to go to college. You know, I will be able to start building up the corporate ladder. Or maybe we don't get so much on the business side, but we're like, okay, like, I'm going to get over here and I'm going to focus on like my hobbies and eventually like I want this hobby to turn into a job. So I'm going to start making this like a side hustle. So I'm going to start doing all these extra hours in addition to my other job so I can eventually make this my goal. You know, or we're like, okay, like if we just all vote for the one party, like Democrats or Republicans, like we can really make this country the way we want it to be. Now, I'm not saying that this stuff inherently is wrong. So I'm not telling you all to quit your jobs or to stop focusing on your families or to, you know, have no hobbies or to not be involved in politics or any of that stuff. What I'm encouraging us, though, is that if we call ourselves followers of Jesus, that stuff has to be submitted to the Father's will. So when we pursue our careers, it's not for our own assertion. It's not for our own kingdom. It's for God's kingdom. When we focus on our hobbies, you know, we are called to take time to rest. It's not always good to be working. And so when we have time in our hobbies, are we using it to glorify God? I'm not saying that to have a hobby is necessarily an idol, but sometimes it can become super easy to get, to get wrapped up in that. Same with politics. I'm not saying that, like, our Christian duty is to not be involved in the government at all. No. But I'm saying that, are we following what God's calling us to do or simply just following the atmosphere that we're in of the church and the political pundits that we follow? And likewise, with our families, are we truly building up our family the way God's called us to or are we trying to just follow what the worldly wisdom says? Because if we're not careful, it's easy to fall into this practical mindset. I mean, look at the different cultures we're in. We can debate to death whether or not we should send our kids to public school, private school, or homeschool. You know, and we debate about, you know, whether the church should be family-centric, or maybe we should be focusing on missions, or maybe we should be focusing on, like, building people up in their businesses. And we get all these different themes and these ideas of what we should do. But are we submitting to God? Because here's the thing, whether you send your kids to public school, private school, or homeschool, are you glorifying God in it and are obeying him? I'm not saying that one over the other is right, but what I'm saying is that were you following your conscience? Were you submitting to God's will when you made that decision how to educate your children? Because here's the thing, like, and I see this a lot of times, we get into this black and white mindset of like, well, clearly God says that you all need to homeschool your kids because that is the loving thing to do. Or we're like, well, clearly God says to go out into the world. So therefore, everybody needs to send their kids to public school. And the thing is, is that both can be right. If God is specifically calling you to be involved as an ambassador of God's kingdom in the public school system, do it. If God is calling you to have your kids at home to homeschool them because, you know, you believe that that is the best way you can build into them, do it. 
But I am not up here to tell you that you must all either homeschool or send them to public school. I am here to tell you, dig into your word and learn and be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you can discern what God's will is. And the same thing happens with politics. We get so caught up in this idea of like, okay, like if we all just vote for the conservative mindset, like, you know, we'll just have all these Christian leaders get into our government and they'll establish all these Christian laws and then everybody will just be forced to abide by the Christian law in the nation and we'll just have a Christian nation again. Well, what about the part where it says that we're supposed to go out and make disciples? Because the thing is, sometimes it's easy to just say, oh, well, let's just make a Christian nation and we'll have this top trickle-down effect and everybody will just authentically become Christians. Not necessarily. Sometimes God calls you to go out into your neighborhoods. Now, on the flip side, I don't want to make fun of just the conservative mindset. We also have, you know, in other churches where this idea of like, oh, we just need to like get all these government welfare programs and social justice and equity for all. And like, if we just do that, everybody will just be, there'll be fairness and equality, and, like, we can really show God's love and mercy through just sharing equity with all. But the truth is, is that on both sides, like, if we're not, you know, we look at the conservative side and we just say, okay, like, let's just get a Christian nation in place. We look at the liberal side, it's like, okay, let's just create all these welfare programs. But do you know what both sides show? They show that we're not relying on God's word. We're relying on a mindset of the world. Okay, let's just set up this over here. Let's just set up this over here. But where's the call to repentance? Where is the making of disciples? Where is the submission to God's will? Now, I, like I said before, I'm not trying to tell you that voting a certain way is sinful. I'm not trying to tell you that y'all need to vote for X party or Y party or even third party or any of that stuff. But what I'm trying to get at is, what is God calling you to do? You know, we in this country have truly a blessing to be involved in the government process. But are we simply just going to follow the group think of today's culture, or are we going to follow God's word? You know, we, we must be so careful to come back to God's word, or else it's easy to just fall into a pragmatic, practical mindset. And I want to bring this back to what Jesus said in John 5 and what he called us to do. So we look at John 5 again. And Jesus says, oh, my notes are all messed up. Hold on a second. <laughs> so we look at John 5, verse 19, when Jesus tells them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. So you see here, he says, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees his Father doing. That reveals a yielded mindset, a submitted mindset. And that same message is given to us as his followers in John 15, verse 5. When Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. And so we see here that we must be abiding in Jesus. See, we can go do all these great things in our own strength, but in the grand scheme of things, at the end of it all, it will amount to nothing. We bear fruit for God's kingdom when we abide in Christ. And so that is the mindset. That is the submitted 
posture of our hearts that we must attain to. You know, and I want to talk as well, you know, we, we've talked about our individual goals. And like I said, I, I'm not trying to tell you that your job is wrong and you need to quit it or that the way you're building up your family is wrong and you need to do it the way I say or that the way you vote is wrong and you need to do it the way I say. I'm encouraging all of us here to do is to abide in Christ. If we are truly abiding, if we are submitted and allowing our minds to be transformed by the Holy Spirit's work in our life, we will discern what God's calling us to do. And so the way we do our jobs is going to look different from the rest of the world because it's no longer about building up a 401k or just constantly climbing the ladder. It's going to be knowing that God placed us in that industry to be an ambassador for him. And that, you know, if God calls us to get married and to raise a family, that we are doing it knowing that God has called us to do that. And we're not just doing it for our own glory or to be able to become a mom blogger or any of those things. I'm sorry, there's not to roast on mom bloggers too much, but, you know. <laughs> anyway, um, but, you know, we, we see this a lot where it's like, we, we, we just get so caught up in just these, these mindsets and these cultures, and it's easy to get wrapped into them. But what is God calling us to do? And now I want to take it to another level, not just individually, but as a church. You know, something we've been talking about lately is what is God's mission for Mercy Hill? We're heading into another transient time where this building's up for sale, we don't know where we're going to be meeting again. You know, we might be traveling around just renting out places each and every year. Um, but what is God calling us to do? You know, and that's why we need to be in prayer. That's why we need to be meeting as a church. Because here's the thing. Once again, we can take the pragmatic approach and just be like, oh, well, let's buy some land. Let's buy it out on the outskirts of the city and let's build a nice building. And let's just build up all these programs in our church, and we'll just keep gathering people. And because we bought lots of land, we know that we can expand as our church grows. And as we start to get up to 500 people, 600, 700, up to 1,000, we can start building on these nice additions, and we'll have all these programs and all these different types of teams and ministries, and we'll be able to start planting all these satellite churches, and we'll have this great church. Now, once again, I'm not saying that if a church followed that model or if a church built that way, that that was necessarily wrong. But what I'm saying is that too many times it's easy for us to say, look at how that church did that. Let's be like them. But is that what God's calling us to be as Mercy Hill? How does he want us to be a part of this body and building up this church? Are we just going to follow church growth models and business plans, or are we going to trust God? You know, something that we've been doing recently is we've been meeting at the Nimmo's house on Friday nights. And in that time, we're just in prayer and worship. We're praying for God to lead us as a church. We're praying for discernment and direction over the course of this upcoming season because we don't know fully what God's calling us to do. And so we are submitting and we're gathering as a church and meeting and praying and just seeking God's will. 
And a couple weeks ago, many of us, as we were praying, all felt this word on our hearts. And it was submission. And many of us just felt like, you know, if we are truly going to do this right, we have to be submitted. And so, in a sense, this word has been a challenge for all of us. Are we going to submit? Are we going to submit to God's will? How is this church going to be built? And this is a big challenge because it means we have to die to ourselves daily. And not just daily. In my case, it's like every single minute. <laughs> like, I feel like I'll be doing like, okay, God, like, I submit. I'm trusting you. I'm going to follow you. And then 10 minutes later, like, I get totally distracted by something else and I'm thinking along the ways of the world. So we must be dying to ourselves on a moment-by-moment basis. We must be following Jesus trusting the Holy Spirit to move in our lives. And the thing is, is that it may not look like what we are expecting. You know, sometimes we look at revivals that took place in the U.S. and we say, oh man, if we could just recreate that, if that could just happen again. And don't get me wrong, like it would be amazing to see a revival take place in Janesville. But what if God's will is for a handful of people at a time to be saved, to come to him, versus a hundred people at a big tent revival? Are we still going to be faithful in that? You know, as a church, what if only 100 people show up on a Sunday versus 500? Are we still going to be faithful to God's calling? Because it's easy sometimes to get discouraged and say, oh, well, our attendance was down, or oh, we just aren't getting the crowds, or like people just aren't coming to Christ. And so then we start to try to take matters into our own hands once again, just as Jesus' brothers were trying to encourage Jesus to do. So here's the thing. In every season of life, when things don't always look like we expect them to be or don't follow the world's model, are we still going to be faithful? When maybe your business is not growing the way you thought it would be, but you knew it was what God was calling you to, are you still going to be faithful to that? Maybe if God has called you into a season to remain single in order to focus on him because— You know, Paul has talked about this before, that sometimes when people get married, like, their desire is for their family. And there's nothing wrong with that. But if God calls you into a season of singleness, are you going to remain faithful to that? If God calls you into a season, well, not just a season, but if God calls you into raising a family for the rest of your life, are you going to remain faithful to that? You know, it's not about just following, like, what these bloggers are posting or what these political pundits are saying or what even just, like, even a a well-intentioned Christian might say in a post or a sermon. Because if we just get locked into that and say, okay, I'm just going to follow this person because they said this and that's so great. Yes, God will use these people to edify and build you up and um, provide encouragement and direction. But ultimately, it is on all of us to always go back to God's word, to always be discerning his will. And so we must remain faithful in every season God calls us to. And so my encouragement as we wrap this up, let's be the church of Mercy Hill. Let's not look at every other church and what their successful growth pattern was, but let's be faithful to what God calls us to do. Whether we are, in a sense, in a tabernacle season where we have to move around and we don't have an established location, or whether God provides a building for us, let's be faithful. 
let's be faithful to what God has called us to do as the body of Christ. It says that the Holy Spirit apportions out gifts to each person as he wills. And so we see the use of the spiritual gifts to edify the church body. Are we going to be faithful to those gifts we've been given? You know, and maybe we don't see this like dramatic outpouring of the Spirit where everybody's prophesying and speaking in tongues on a Sunday morning or something like that. But maybe it comes in a quieter session. Maybe it's a slow building up as we grow in maturity where we all start to become a unified body by faith and Spirit and we live out those gifts of the Spirit in our lives, in our church community. Are we going to be faithful to that? Are we going to be faithful if we have to go through another season like 2020? 2020 had a lot of upheaval. It was rough for a lot of us. But are we going to be faithful and trust God? You know, I saw a lot of people, not just in Mercy Hill, but a lot of people all over social media posting about how, oh, the government can't tell the church to close the doors. The government can't tell the church to close the doors. That's just such an evil thing to say and do. The church doors opened up. Where were some of those people? Well, then they had the freedom not to choose to go to church. You know, and, and it reve- for some people, yes, they truly were upset that the church doors were closed. And they came back and they got invested in the church when the churches opened up again. But there were other people who just lived as they pleased. Because the thing is, their heart was revealed in that season that they weren't so much involved in the church as they simply just wanted the freedom and comfort to choose to go to church or not to go to church. And so if we have to go through another season where maybe there's more mandates, or maybe we're not even talking about a pandemic and there's political turmoil like what we've been seeing in Afghanistan, if we have to endure persecution on that level or persecution of a different nature, are we going to remain faithful to being the church? Or are we just going to simply start following our own hearts and minds? This was not an easy sermon for me to prepare this week. I wrestled with a lot of it. Um, I was convicted a lot of times because I would start writing and then I'd feel myself get like, really ranty and wanting to talk about all this different stuff and be like, oh, that'd be a really good point. Like, I think this would really be like something that would like really, you know, hit it in. And guy was like, well, Dale, this is meant for you too. And I'm like, uh. <laughs> and I had to be praying and repenting and submitting because God is working on my heart too as I'm preparing this sermon. And there were a lot of things I had to wrestle through. There were a lot of things of like, God's like, what are you focusing your time on? You know, what are you really trusting me in? And so I encourage all of us here. What is God calling you to do in your life? What is he leading you into? And as a church, if you call yourself a member of Mercy Hill... Is there an area where God's calling you to get involved where you maybe have been slacking off? Are we truly following God's leadership for this church um, in this next season as we look for another building, another location? You know, as ministries are starting to get built up again, are we being obedient to following God's leading for that ministry versus just following what other churches do for those similar ministries? So, 
don't just leave today and just be like, oh, great sermon, challenging stuff. All right, I'm going to go start my week. Be in the word. Be in prayer. And don't just commit to being at church on Sunday, but commit to being the church throughout the week because we all need each other. You know, it's easy sometimes to just read our Bibles and pray by ourselves. And that is a good thing. I'm not saying you can't do that. But come together as the church because we need everyone's voices. We need everyone to be a functioning part of the body if we truly want to discern God's will for Mercy Hill Church. And we have opportunities. I'm going to plug this in again. Friday nights at the Nimmo's house. Come to Spirit Led. There's, there's free food. You can bring food with you if you want. You know, we, we hang out. We, we have some time to gather as the believers. We eat. We fellowship. But we pray and we worship. Come to men's group and women's group. Men's group is at my house on the first and third Tuesday of every month. So in September, the first Tuesday of that month, we're going to be starting up again. You know, I know summer got busy for a lot of people, and we saw a lot of people kind of leave for the summer. But try to make a commitment, if you can, to be at men's group. Try to make a commitment, if you can, to be at women's group. When do you have to remind me? Is it the second Tuesday and third Saturday? Second Saturday and fourth Tuesday. All right. So we've got announcement pages in the back with all the details of different events that come up for the church. You know, I understand we all have busy lives, and I'm not saying, like, in order to be a good church member, you got to be at 100% attendance. Because, once again, that's following worldly wisdom. (laughs) But be the church, if at all possible. If God's calling you into something, go get active in that. Go be a part of that. You know, be a part of the different community groups we have so that you can learn throughout the week and grow in community with your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. What's tonight? Oh, there's a community group tonight. What's that group? Oh, okay. When do you guys meet? Okay, and there's another community group. I did not realize that. Uh, First and third Sunday of each month, there's another community group that meets at Jennifer's house. You know, talk to the people who are hosting. Get their address. Just chat with them, you know, and and step out in faith if that's what God's calling you to do. You know, don't hide back because like, oh, well, I'm a new believer. Oh, I don't read my Bible enough, so I feel weird going to these things. You know, this isn't like some super scholarly like, oh, yes, let's discuss this book club that we read, you know. Be a part of the community. Get involved. And sometimes it means submitting to God and sacrificing other things in your schedule that are not nearly as important as being the church. Um, So once again, announcements. You know, those are kind of our things coming up. Those are our community groups. Um, You can check out our Facebook page for more details on those. There's also announcement pages in the back that you can um, pick up if you um, aren't part of the Facebook group or whatever or don't have social media. But check those out. See what we are doing apart from just Sunday mornings. Other than that, you know, I also want to say that there are some here or others online who may hear this and are not believers. And my question to you is that, you know, as God draws you, as he opens your eyes to the truth, are you going to submit to that or are you going to keep following the world? Because God calls all of us to repentance, to turn away from living for ourselves, living for the world, and to live for him. Because the fact of the matter is, living for the world, living for ourselves, 
We are broken. This world is broken. We have sin. And because of that, we are condemned to hell. But God, using his son Jesus, paid that cost by being crucified on the cross, taking the weight of all the sins and atoning for that so that we may be saved. You know, we see that. Jesus' mission was to do that, and he did. He was faithful to it. And so now, that calling is for all of us. Are we going to repent and submit? So I just encourage all of you here, let's not just go back to our daily routine after this. Let's not just go back to what our influencers are that we follow and what they say, or simply just what the culture around us says. But let's dig in. You know, this is a season God's calling us to grow as a church, and it requires growing in maturity, growing in faith and boldness, and growing in discernment. And so that's my encouragement for all of us here, myself included. So let's stop and just pray. And just pray that God would be, continue to work in us and would soften our hearts. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. <laughs> we thank you for your Holy Spirit in us who convicts us, who opens our eyes to the truth. It's not easy. <laughs> we don't always like it. But Lord, we are thankful. We are thankful because you love us enough to help us grow in maturity and faith. You help us, Lord, to see what is truly the most meaningful in this world and for your kingdom. And so, God, we pray, Lord, uh, that we would be obedient to what you are calling us to do. Lord, if there is a, a ministry you are calling us to establish at Mercy Hill, that we would do it by your spirit and not in our own strength. Lord, that you would raise up people to lead that ministry. Lord, if you are simply calling us in this season to rest and to step aside from the busyness of this world and to simply rest in you and to just uh, be a part of the church in this season, Lord, that we would take that time to rest and to just grow through it so that we would become equipped through that season to then um, do other leading and service. Lord, if there are things that you were calling us to strip away, any burdens that we need to cast off, Lord, that we would just submit to you, Lord, and rely on your spirit's strength to let go of those burdens on our back so that we can run more effectively. God, lead us as a church that we would continue to be the body as described in Ephesians 4, that we would be built up in every way into the head which is Christ Jesus, and Lord, that we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we may discern what your will is. Lord, that we'd be faithful in every season, even when things don't always make sense, even when things are tough and we may not see the numbers or the quantitative data that we like to see. Help us to remain faithful and not just take matters into our own hands. Guide us and lead us, Lord, in all this, we pray. We thank you for your son's faithfulness to his calling. Because of that, we are saved and we are thankful. So, Lord, we just surrender to you. We submit to you. We are your church body. 
we thank you. We pray for all of this in your son's name. Amen.